Nehemiah chapter 4. When Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, it will break down their stone wall. And then the next bit is Nehemiah praying, hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where there are captives. Do not cover their guilt, and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sambalat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward, and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. We prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. That is too much rubble. By ourselves we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemy said, They will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their sword, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked in construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah, who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the breaking of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. Well, 
let's see what uh, we can make of this. Inside the service sheet, you'll see an outline, a seven-point outline, so don't panic. Now, the message of Nehemiah, for those of us who have been here and studying it, um, every Bible book has a message, I guess, and um, if you're new to Nehemiah, uh, what's the message of this book? Something like this, in response to God's gracious deliverance, God's people are to trust in his promises and in his providence. That means that God will do stuff in his own way, and we don't know always what it is. God's people are to prayerfully submit to his word and work strategically and with vision for spiritual reformation. The first half of the book of Nehemiah is about rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. Just in case anyone is in any doubt, the book of Nehemiah is not about a church building project. If you think by that, buildings mean bricks and water. We didn't coincide Nehemiah with the church building project. As I said in the first service, I think, I forget what I say in each one, uh, but never mind. Had we been able to buy this building long before we got to this series in Nehemiah, we would have done so. But God sorts out these divine kind of intersections. It's not about building with bricks and mortar. It's about building God's kingdom. It's about seeing the church reach, build, train, and send. Seeing churches multiply. Seeing evangelism, mission. That's kingdom building stuff. And this building that we have got is for us to invest in that the kingdom of God might be built through it. Let me rephrase the phrase in the publicity material about the building with a little bit of help from Nehemiah. It is a base from which we are to prayerfully and in submission to God's word work strategically and with vision for spiritual reformation. Now, By the time we get to chapter 4, 5, 6, and the beginning of chapter 7, it is all about opposition to the work of spiritual reformation. So, opposition against the work of kingdom building. Three and a bit chapters, which means that opposition is a big deal. So, how about three sermons? Well, we're going to have two But it's striking in the book, four, five, six, opposition. I have no basis of this at all, but I see this again and again, or a similar pattern to this. Opposition comes in Christians' lives and in churches' lives, not usually one thing at a time. Often, two or three. Chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6. Now, I don't need to convince us. If you are a real Christian, and by that I mean somebody who is open about their faith, for that is what a Christian is. Someone who is seeking to grow in godliness, for that is who a Christian is. Someone who is trying with all our feeble attempts to share our faith, for that is what a Christian is. Or if you are a real church, if we are a real church, seeking to to push out with the kingdom of God in the world and in the city, with a real gospel, I will not need to convince you that you will face opposition. 
what I do need to convince you is that the kingdom of God gets built. So here's a New Testament verse that you may know. Jesus' words, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus will build his church. It is a fact. Because his power to build is greater than the power of hell to destroy. His words also remind us, though, that behind every bit of kingdom-building work, every bit of kingdom-building progress is spiritual opposition. And behind spiritual opposition of whatever form is the devil, hell-bent on breaking down the walls. Had we had time, we would have read from Ephesians 6. You see it in the sheet. Paul finishes his letter to the Ephesians by telling them not to love each other and love the Lord, that would be a good ending, but to put on armor so that they may be able to stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, even though it looks like it. I mean, you don't see the devil prowling around like a lion. You see other stuff. You see what Nehemiah and the people of God faced. Ridicule, discouragement, weariness, setbacks, mockery, doubts. But behind every slight, everything that opposes the living church is the devil. Somebody asked, I always have the benefit in service two of relaying to you the questions I have in service one, which are often about the weather and what I'm wearing. Here's a good question. Does that mean we should be afraid? Yes. Should we be afraid now as a church? Just after what has happened? Yes. But, not so afraid that we think that the power of the gospel will not prevail, because it will. One of our elders reflecting on the past two years, who has been at the heart of all that has happened in terms of the planning and the endless false starts and one squillion meetings, said, wouldn't it have been good if we had trusted a bit more and not fretted so much because God will build his church? It's very striking, isn't it? Of course we struggle and we get discouraged. Opposition is real, but the church gets built. Now, um, three doses of opposition. Chapter 4, God's people, the whole of God's people, or if you like, us as a church, um, a local church facing opposition from the world, and then God's people facing spiritual opposition, division and problems from within. 
the leaders of God's people facing spiritual opposition from the world, chapter 6. So, all of us facing opposition from the world, chapter 4, internal division, chapter 5, and then the leaders of God's people facing opposition, chapter 6, the beginning of 7. Now, no rugby illustrations today. Uh, um, There are some Irish people here, and they were very gracious. Um, I got a text yesterday from one of you who is Irish and said, fair play, Scotland. Very gracious. No doubt Scotland will lose the next one there. It is a good illustration, though, a sports game, whatever the game is. So if a, a rugby team prevails in a game, and if you saw the game yesterday, they win because of attack, and they win because of good defense. In fact, oftentimes, it's the defense that turns the game. So think of a sports team encamped in their own try line for 20 minutes. Up against it. Up against it. And then suddenly, it turns. That's the Christian life. Except that we will always win. In the end, the church gets built. It's a bit like, um, please don't spread around social media unwisely that we've got all that money and all that, yeah? It is of no surprise to God that a building would come and the money would come. None at all. Just to us. Now, seven points. How long have we got? 25 minutes. That means three and a bit on each. No chance. (laughs) Firstly, spiritual opposition is inevitable. Verses 1 to 3, uh, Sambalat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite, they were greatly enraged. What do they do? Verse 1, scorn or ridicule. They belittled their qualities. You said, you feeble bunch. They derided their ambitions. Will you restore it for yourselves? They mocked their optimism. They lampooned their enthusiasm. Will they finish it in a day? They undermined their confidence. Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? You know, and we're talking big, big heaps of rubble here. You might have a great plan, they'd be saying, but let's just see what happens. And then Tobiah, Symbalat's yes man, chips in with his comment. You see it in verse 3. What they are building, if a fox goes up in it, he will break down the stone wall. One of you last week asked me how thick the wall was. Here's the answer. Nine feet. That is some fox. But the rhetoric of discouragement is so very effective. In verses 7 to 8, it ramps up a bit. When Sambalat and Tobiah, the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites 
heard that the repairing of the walls was going forward and breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry, and they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and cause confusion. Now, let me apply this. Why are God's people opposed? Why is it that living churches or the gospel or Christians are the butt of the media's mockery? Because largely we are. Why is it that a stand-up comedian cannot resist having a poke at an evangelical Christian? Why? Why is that the case if, as is the view of what they write and what they say, we are feeble, not worth bothering about, weak, marginal, and deluded? Why give it airtime? Why so much hostility? Listen to what Jesus says. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me. People are hostile to the church because they hate Jesus. If you were of the world, Jesus says, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, and I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, there's strong words. The world will hate you because it hates me. Now, just think of the Lord Jesus. You could not, in history have met a more loving person, a more compassionate person, someone who had a greater heart for the poor, someone who went in his day to women and slaves and others that no one else would speak to, someone who taught with humility and authority, someone who healed the sick, and someone who said, I will give you everlasting life. And yet, he was and is the most hated man still in history and is the number one swear word in the world. Why on earth is that? Because people will not yield to repent and believe. Every manifestation of spiritual opposition is the devil. Remember I said that at the beginning. And if anyone hates Jesus, he does. And evangelical Christians or orthodox Christians are the butt and ridicule in our culture. When I was prepping this week, an incident in my past came into my mind. Uh, My mother is here. She might remember this. Um, I was a teenager, maybe 15 or 16 And I'd been asked to play for a district rugby team. I wasn't awfully good at rugby, but I was relatively good. And we all sat, I remember it vividly, it's Golden Acre down in Edinburgh, if you know the pitches there. And I I sat there on the ground and the coach said, the next practice is on a Sunday. Can anyone not come? For some reason, I put my hand up and I said, I can't because I go to church. And they all mocked me in the way that 15-year-olds do. And it, it kind of 
now I would just take it on the chin, a bit more hardened, but not when you're 15. Why were they so again that as a reason? Why? Because the devil, who lives in the hearts of all those who are not believers, hates Jesus Christ. And the stuff we face is the sort of personal slights and the mockery and the knocking and the sniping and all that. I remember in in all that's happened with us in the church, getting a letter a few years ago saying that uh, I and we as the elders were foolhardy in error and we would be responsible for the end of this church. And I, according to the letter, may well end up mentally ill. That's an encouraging letter, isn't it? It's just what Nehemiah faced. Nothing new. Andy Robertson uh, did a presentation to the elders on Wednesday about the church plant in Charleston and Dundee. It's exciting. Andy's becoming a gifted administrator and financial planner. How on earth did that happen? The plans are coming together. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. In six months, he's going to start. Andy and Karen are going to move into a house in Charleston. Someone is going to buy them a house. Isn't that great? It's going to happen. But I fear for them. And I fear for all the guys we train in gospel work and ministry. And I fear for you as you're open about your faith. For do you think there will be one big dose of spiritual opposition if somebody wants to plant a church in the middle of an area where 4,500 people live who, because of their circumstances, will never leave Charleston? I think so. The devil will be prowling around looking for somebody to divert. So pray for Andy and Kyrie, and don't tell them I asked you. They will face a war. But the church will be built. And men and women and boys and girls in Charleston will become Christians and will spend eternity with Jesus. Second, prayer is crucial. That was six minutes. Every time Nehemiah needs to make a decision, faces difficulty or opposition, or sees progress breakthrough, he prays. Why does he pray? Why does he pray? Because he knows that the Lord is the builder, not him, and that the people need God's leadership, not his, and that they need God's power, not any power of their own, to break through the opposition. And as soon as they have broken through, he prays again and says, thank you, God, for what you did that I can do. Look at his prayer, verse 4. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. Shouldn't we be loving our enemies? And that's striking prayer, isn't it? What should we be praying 
for those who oppose the progress of the living church. Yes, one-on-one, I guess, we love our enemies. But there are times when we need to pray that God will deal with those who oppose his kingdom-building work. And when the leaders pray, the people pray. Verse 9, we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Now, in the heat of spiritual opposition, how necessary it is to pray, what a resource and privilege it is, and be alert to a particular expression of spiritual opposition to stop you praying. That is a very common tactic of the devil. And notice the rhythm in verses 1 to 9. Just look at the text. Verses 1 to 5, opposition. Verses 4 and 5, prayer. Verse 6, progress, so we built the wall. Verses 7 and 8, more opposition. Verse 9, prayer. Verse 10 and onwards, progress. Progress, opposition, prayer, progress, prayer. It's a pattern that runs through the life of a church Now, here's a bold request, yeah? Everyone listening. I'm going to start with a logical statement and then pose a question to you. What do you think would happen if every one of us, and there are 362 and a half of us, whatever it is, what do you think would happen if every single one of us gathered together every month in the new building and prayed corporately to God that he would break through in some of the big obstacles we face in this city, that he would break through in this country, what do you think would happen if we did it for the right reasons? I mean... We do it because God says to do it. That's a good reason. And what do you think would happen? I think what would happen is some of the big obstacles would tumble down. Now, the harder question, why will you not come and pray? Why will you not do it? Why will you not come? Because the devil will do all that he can to keep you away. So please come. And let's believe that some of these walls will be built. Just picture in your minds in the new building 360 of us praying, all of us. Shoulder to shoulder, Nehemiah 3. I mean, it can all go horribly wrong. You can put it on social media. Look at our prayer meeting. Isn't it huge? And it probably will. Somebody after the first service said to me, that was rather direct, wasn't it? But surely it's right, isn't it? Surely it's better. Number three. Exhaustion, discouragement, and fear are understandable. I love these verses. 
It's just great because it's exactly how it is. In Judah, it was said, so amongst the people of God, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burden is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not build to rebuild the wall. And our enemy said, of course you won't. In fact, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop their work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. Now, there's a great realism in these verses. Um, they were knackered. They were exhausted. They'd been working for several weeks under the pressure of spiritual opposition. The pressure is beginning to tell. Anyone seriously committed to gospel work, building God's kingdom, any church seriously committed to working with vision and strategy for spiritual reformation will be tired often and aware of the immensity of the enterprise. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. There are far too many dead churches in this city to ever be able to see things turn around. It's far too hard. And then the threats against the workers... The worst kind of threats of all are threats to the workers' families, their kids. Now listen to the Apostle Paul. Here's the great superhero of the New Testament. This is him reflecting on what it's like to be in Christian work or a church on the front foot. We have this treasure, the gospel, in jars of clay. You and I are jars of clay. What's a jar of clay? Something that easily gets broken. You knock a jar of clay off the mantelpiece, thousand pieces. We are jars of clay with the gospel to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed. We have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow, but we are never driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Isn't that striking stuff? Oops. You live in a living church with the scars of Calvary on your corporate life. You live as an individual Christian in Christian ministry, whatever it is, with the scars of Calvary written all over your life. Now, verses 13 to 14, that was three minutes. Inspirational, decisive, and compassionate leadership is instrumental. God uses, he calls leaders to encourage, to strengthen God's people. Why? Because Lone Ranger Christianity doesn't work. Verse 13, so in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans, 
with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Now notice how Nehemiah inspires God's people. He doesn't do it with persuasive and powerful rhetoric, nor does he belittle the reality and strength of the opposition. He doesn't ask them to have confidence in him as their leader. He doesn't say, I've been to a conference, I know how to build a church. What does he do? He takes their heads that are looking down and discouraged, and he lifts them up to look to God. He takes their hands that are shaking in fear and puts their hands into the Lord's hands. Do not be afraid. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, And then he says to them, do not think that the work you are doing is insignificant, for you are fighting for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. You are building the kingdom of God for generations to come. He is inspirational. He is compassionate. He gets alongside them. He loves them. And he is decisive. He stations guards all over the camp. Now, the elders here are not going to encourage you to go and get a spear or a pistol or any other form of physical weapon. But they will and should, and I encourage you now, to arm yourself with all the spiritual weapons available. The gospel, truth, faith, salvation, the sword of the Spirit, and prayer. Unity, hard work, vigilance, and fighting are essential. Now, we'll just touch on these. Time is running on. Unity, unity. They all crack on with the work. Unity. Here's another plea to you. This is never going to happen before Jesus comes again, but let me have a go. You're all going to come and pray. I'll remind you of that. Because I think you know in your hearts when I said that, you know that it's the right thing to do. Here's another one. How about as a church, 100% of the church does 100% of the work? That'll not happen until Jesus comes again. Unity across the church, shoulder to shoulder, side by side. Vigilance, be alert, be watchful. The enemy prowls around. And fighting is essential. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. What's a description of the Christian life, a church's life? Work and fight. Work and fight. And notice verse 20, the end of verse 20. Our God will fight for us. Verses 21 to 23, sacrificial service is inescapable. What these verses describe is that Nehemiah said, you can't go to sleep. You can't relax. Stay up all night. Now, just to make sure we realize, by the time we get to the latter chapters of the book, he says to them, you've got to have a day off. 
does say that. But a church's life should be one of sustainable sacrifice, constant sacrifice that is sustainable. A Christian's life should be one of sustainable sacrifice. And of course, that's all over the New Testament. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Point number seven, the Lord Jesus is invincible. Verses 4, 9, 14, 15, 20. Of course, it's about God here, but for us, it's the Lord Jesus, the final expression of God's salvation plan. Spiritual opposition is real, but the work gets done because the Lord is invincible. He will build His church. All through this chapter, God punctuates the text. Hear us, O our God, for we are despised. Verse 9, we prayed to our God. Verse 14, do not be afraid. The Lord is great and awesome. Verse 15, God frustrated the plans of those who opposed his people. Verse 20, our God will fight for us. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome. Our God will fight for us. These words echoed through the covenant community then. And they need to echo through the church today. Opposition is inevitable, but God is invincible. So in the words of a famous old prime minister who's made a great comeback with the crown on Netflix. And his words are absolutely true for the church in the days of which we live. Never, 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 never give up. Right, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this real passage from Scripture about real life in the church of Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would enable us to see that opposition is real, not to relish it, but not to be deflected by it. We pray that you would help us to see that the devil will get us in any way he can, whether in mockery, whether just by taking the stuff of life and twisting his knife. But he will not win, for the church will be built, and hell will not prevail against it. Help us, Lord, to be vigilant, help us to work, and help us to arm ourselves with spiritual weapons, not least with the gospel of righteousness, of which we will now sing. For Jesus' sake, amen.